Thank you, Anne. I have a very ambitious goal with the sermon this week, which is to open up what for many may be a new way of thinking about the familiar word faith. As we get into uh, Romans chapter 4, which is the lectionary reading this week, it is one of the most challenging uh, chapters within a very challenging book, Paul's letter to the Romans. And there's been a lot of work uh, on Romans and on this area um, at an academic level that actually has been, I think, really helpful to think through what is Paul on about, what's, what's the main point he's making here. But it does invite us to rethink some familiar terminology and especially the way we understand this word faith. Um, often we, uh, the academics, and uh, have their sort of areas of research and they read books and they respond to it and they have further conversation and it, that has been going on in this area for 30 or 40 years about uh, what is meant by righteousness. And in the last half a dozen years, there's been some really fruitful work done on what does this word that we commonly translate as faith actually convey? And uh, I found it really helpful, but I'm also aware that I've been sitting with this for a few years to process it and think it through. So I'm introducing something that may well invite more questions and conversation rather than necessarily answering things. That's my hope. The English word faith has a wide range of connotations. And uh, while we're familiar with the word faith, it's not an unfamiliar word, it conveys for some a sense of blind faith, of foolishness, of those who just don't want to recognise the reality of the world around them and therefore step over, uh, over cliffs or bump into all sorts of things. Otherwise, sometimes the word faith is as it's used by Richard Dawkins. Um, faith is the great cop-out the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith, he says, is belief in spite of, perhaps even because of, the lack of evidence. Now, I would fairly readily dismiss that that is not what we are talking about by way of faith, nor is it what the Bible and those who are thinking about it in a religious sense mean by it. But those views are very widely held and we need to be aware of it. But I want to set those two notions to one side, but just to highlight that the word faith actually is prob problematic. When we come to understanding how Paul, who speaks a lot about what we in our translations describe as faith, faith as Paul means it is not faith as we commonly think about it. It does not mean an inner feeling or a quality of stepping into the unknown. It's not the opposite of works, that some people seek salvation through works and others would choose it through faith. That's a pretty big claim and I want to just tease it out a little bit and I do so with a degree of trepidation. The Greek word that underlines our English translation of faith is the word called pistis. And we often think that there is a word in one language and there is the equivalent word in another language and they mean pretty much the same thing. But that actually, that's not the case. 
Often there's a whole range of words and the original language may have a whole lot of notions that are lost by our English equivalent, most commonly faith. So this word pistis that Paul is talking about conveys a notion of trust and in particular trust in someone or something. And that's not particularly new. We've, we've often recognised that if we truly have faith in someone, it will show in the way in which we actually live that out. I have faith in a bus driver that hopefully they know where the destination is. I have faith in a pilot that they know how to fly the plane, not only get it up, but even more importantly, get it down again. We all live by that need. Life would be a very fearful place if we didn't have that level of trust. But the point is that this element of trust is outward focused. So where I want to end up today in the sermon uh, is to say that we've often thought about faith as a very interior quality. And we bemoan, I wish I had the level of faith that others have. I feel so bad that I, I don't feel that faith that others seem to display. Whereas Paul's talking about something that is not so much here, but focused out, outwards, and in particular focused outwards in Jesus the King. That is the focus of our faith. It's about him, not about me. Other elements of this word can mean loyalty. And I'm going to run for these fairly quickly, although there's been a lot of research done how commonly the people listening and hearing these words in Paul's day would understand these wider range. It's what's called a semantic field. It can mean obedience. It can mean having confidence in something or someone. It can mean the quality of faithfulness, of trusting in a relational sense. It can mean the notions of fidelity, of honouring a, a vow or a promise or a commitment. These are all conveyed in the, this word pistis. And in particular, one that has been most interesting that has emerged is that the word allegiance is probably the closest to what this word pistis means. It is to give our allegiance to someone. Saying of all the various people I could choose to follow, I choose you. Of all the people that I might choose to worship and to honour and to worship in the fullest sense of attributing absolute worth, I choose you. In our case, we choose Christ. That is what this word pistis is talking about. So a phrase that conveys it in the way in which Paul was talking about is this pistis is integrity in a relationship of trust. That's what Paul is conveying. Not all about me and how much faith I can muster, but it's the nature of my relationship who I'm giving my loyalty. So that's what we're going to explore a little bit. How does that help us understand these two Bible readings that we've just heard. First of all, Paul uses the example of Abraham. Well, just to clarify, um, in Genesis chapter 12, um, Abram's name was still Abram. It later gets changed into Abraham. So it's not that it's just sort of someone playing around with the name. Um, that's all part of the narrative storyline. There's a, a, a development into his name, goes from Abram to Abraham. Just a note. 
This passage in Genesis 12 is a very profound one in God's work of salvation. Yahweh said to Abram, get yourself up and go. Go from your land and from your house, from your kindred and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whereas the one who belittles you I will curse and in you will be blessed all kindred groups on earth, on the earth. This is a translation by Christopher Wright. Some of you may know he's got a significant book called The Mission of God. And he says this is where the whole work of salvation commences. What we note is that the main verb is go. It calls for a response. Abram is not able to do this where he, can t- where he is presently living. And to be a blessing is the purpose. Not just that you can receive all the benefits and say, this is pretty wonderful, but that you can take and use the blessings. I want to work through you so that all nations, all kindred groups will be blessed as a result. That is God's purpose. Now, this is what Paul is quoting when he comes to to Romans chapter 4. Now, Romans is a huge book, and I'm not even going to begin to try and describe the bigger picture and the context behind it. But let us look at how this understanding of pistis as allegiance and of righteousness as living in a right relationship, a relationship characterised by fidelity and trust, helps us to understand this otherwise quite difficult chapter in Romans 4. So here I'm offering my own paraphrase, conveying how we can read it, and just see if this makes sense of how we translate it. And I've elevated the parts that I've, um, you might say, tinkered around with. I've, I've paraphrased with the red, so I'm just showing you how this conveys the sense of what this word pistis means. So Paul says, what then, oh, by the way, that the context is Paul has said that all have sinned. We're all uh, in need of trying to be restored into a relationship with God. And we aren't able to do it of ourselves. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, Paul was a, a Jew, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he's an Israelite. He says, we know that Abraham is the one through whom the family came. We know that, what did Abraham discover in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was made righteous by works of the law, the Torah, if he just ticked the boxes and kept the law, he had something to boast about, but not before God, because that actually counts for nothing. What does Scripture say? Abraham chose to give his allegiance to God, and it was credited to him as relating rightly with God. In the wider context, that means relating rightly with God through the covenant that God provided. Remember that following Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God ordered the relationship in the terms of a covenant that had responsibilities upon God himself and also upon Abram. So Paul continues... Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their allegiance is credited as being in a right relationship with God. 
It is still by grace. We don't earn it. We could never earn it or merit it. Then Paul continues. And Paul's point is to, to say that the, uh, the church in, house churches in Rome were split between Jewish house churches and Gentile house churches. And they're wondering whether they, what do they have in common. And the Paul's point is, you actually have Abraham in common because Abraham was a Gentile when God called him. The whole identity of Israel hadn't been invented because that was two generations yet to come. Israel is actually the name of Jacob. So Paul says you actually have Abraham in common. It is not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the covenant relationship that comes by allegiance. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, allegiance means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. It just points out where we've fallen short. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. It draws the line that we then know that we have crossed. Paul's point. Therefore, he says, the promise comes by trusting allegiance so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but only those who eventually became known as Israel, but also those who, like Abraham, are Gentiles, also to those who have the allegiance of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, quoting Genesis 12, I've made you a father of many nations, He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he obediently trusted, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into beings that were not. Can you remember the very last words of, let's go back to it. Actually, it's not in our text. Um, The very last word is in our Bible readings. And what did Abraham do once he received that calling? Did he stay in Haran? He went. That is Paul's point. He said he heard, he responded, and then he acted. That is pistis. Responding in action. Giving his allegiance to follow where he is called. His trust now moved from the other gods he was worshipping to Yahweh. So, where does that take us? As I said, when Paul is talking about pistis, he's not talking about some quality within us. Sometimes I think about myself, you know, when you go to those um, circus sideshows and you've got that big hammer that you try and bang and see how high you can get the, the marker to go up. And sometimes I've used to think about faith like that. You know, this week I'm really going to knock it. I'm going to get a really big faith going this week. Bang! And other weeks I just feel so tired and weak. and Little nod. As though faith is something within us and we feel guilty about it. And we look at others and say, if I only hide their faith. And even worse are those who suggest that the reason why we haven't received the answer to prayers, why we're going through difficulties, perhaps haven't been healed is because in some way we're lacking that barometer of faith within us and we feel dreadful so it's all our fault 
that is not what Paul or James or the New Testament are talking about. It's more, am I walking, seeking to follow the way of Christ imperfectly, perhaps stumbling, yes, but he is the one I'm following, or have I turned my back on Christ and am I heading off in another direction? That is the lack of allegiance, of loyalty, of pistis. But if I'm setting my sights and saying, yes, I do want to follow Christ, he is the one I'm seeking to grow more and more into and be more faithful in terms of my response in my life, that is what Paul is talking about. So, my hope is that this opens up a new way in which we go back to passages and begin to rethink the word that we, in our English translations, have as faith and realise there's more to it than I'm thinking. And if I see it in this outward-focused relational way, and we are encouraging each other as we gather together in our, our desire to focus on God and to celebrate in our songs that God is almighty and wonderful and the king of creation. And our fidelity, our allegiance is well placed. Then we urge each other on as a community to gather as part of that mission and work of God as we enter into further into the season of Lent, this is what we are talking about, the one that we're saying, yes, I will follow, I'm committed, I trust and I'm giving my fidelity to you more than anyone else because no one is more worthy, even though it will bring hardship and challenges because that is the way of Christ. Amen.